Welcome to our Bible class this night at the National Capital Bible Church. Uh, we're in Deuteronomy. We'll be finishing uh, Deuteronomy 17, hopefully get into 18. There's really a lot to be seen, uh, understand in chapter 17. I'll review the, I'll review the uh, outline. Uh, before we get started here, but it's always a wonderful time uh, just prior to the Bible class to take a few seconds of focusing on our own relationship with the Father through God the Holy Spirit. We know that John has told us in First John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is our opportunity to uh, simply close our eyes, bow our heads. It's privacy for us. And it's your opportunity for a few seconds for the confession of sins and for God, the Holy Spirit, to assist us in our study this evening. So let's go to prayer, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to study it, to learn more about you, about how you expect us to respond to you. And also, Father, we're thankful uh, that it demonstrates to us your love for us, that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Redeemer. His love for you and for us sent him to the cross. And while on the cross... He paid for the sins of the entire world. And each and every one of us has the opportunity to make a decision, the decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on the cross for us, his sacrificial work. We're thankful that simply by believing in his work, his finished work, that we have eternal life, that we have imputed righteousness, and a relationship with you. We ask for God the Holy Spirit's blessing upon us this evening as we study the Word of God. And we pray that not only as we study it, that it will make sense to us and we'll be able to apply it to ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy. Last week... We studied from uh, the first part, the first verse of Deuteronomy 17 to Deuteronomy 7.13. And our outline that I showed last week is we are, we've worked our way through uh, the first part of Deuteronomy and We've seen now, beginning in verse 12, the development of the the covenant fellowship. Uh, 
we have uh, an opportunity to understand the covenant that God had with Israel. And he also has a, con- a convict uh, covenant with us. And we very often don't call it a covenant. Uh, it's a relationship. But that's how this is understood in the Old Testament between God and Israel. And we saw that in that this is being explained, uh, taught to us in chapters 12 through 26. We saw uh, the very uh, the first six points here. The last one was the pilgrim festivals. We saw this in uh, chapter 16, 1 through 17. And last week we started the instruments of theocracy from chapter 16, 18, and 18, 22. And uh, we see... Uh, the different points that we were making here. Last week, we saw the judges and the officials, how they are to serve. And today, this evening, we're going to see the kings, the kings, uh, the the requirements of them uh, and their relationships uh, with God. Um, how they are to apply themselves as kings to honor him and reign in a godly way. And this is in chapter 17, beginning in verse 14 through 20. We'll also see possibly in chapter 18 the priests and the Levites Chapter 18, 1 through 8. Uh, there's also, we're going to see the prophets, but this will be certainly as far as we get tonight. Now, beginning in Deuteronomy 17, 6, let me read from verse 14. As a matter of fact, I may just read up to uh, verse 17 because uh, there's quite a bit of background here that I think we need to understand so that we have a better understanding of what Moses is trying to teach the Israelites. Uh, As a matter of fact, this is, for many people, this is rather unusual because when we begin in verse 14, he's speaking about kings, how Israel is supposed to relate to their kings. Well, they don't have any kings, and they're not going to have kings for many, many years. But this was part of what Moses was teaching so that it could be applied many late, many years later. So in verse, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, we have, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possesses it, and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, first of all, whom the Lord your God chooses from, secondly, from among your brethren who shall set as king over you. Thirdly, we could say, you may not set a foreigner over you who is not 
your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In other words, a leader in Israel was not to benefit from simply being the leader. It was not to be an opportunity for him to be greedy, uh, to have many servants, uh, many um, horses, possessions, uh, not to uh, find himself in a time for him to grow his own wealth. And in remar- and, and remarkably, uh, that's how Saul began. He was what we would call a farmer, and he continued to be a farmer. Uh, later, of course, uh, he became more of a king, and we'll, we'll study a little bit of that uh, maybe tonight. But anyhow, uh, the king was not to take that position in order to, to promote himself. All right, just some background here as we begin. First of all, we, we're looking at the leadership. We're going to see the kings. We're going to see the priests, the Levites, uh, the, and the prophets. And we see in these, in Deuteronomy, in the, in the law, that Moses defines the places of the community officers, uh, as I've just expressed them. Um, there are judges that have requirements. Uh, there are priests and Levites. So the judges, uh, or even we could call them kings, judges, because they became uh, deciders at uh, courts. Uh, we also have uh, prophets in the covenant fellowship. We see that uh, Moses foresees potential problems in the people's willingness to submit to the Lord. The laws provide a broad framework within which the community could develop under proper leadership. So there was to be uh, uh, guidelines for these leaderships. And that's what uh, Moses is trying to teach Israel even though they have not yet entered the land. They are on the east side of the Jordan, and they're anticipating um, entering uh, the land. After Moses and Joshua died, the people were to be governed by judges and priests. And God has a plan here. He has a timing. And they, they weren't going to cross into the land and immediately have kings. They were going to, they would grow as a nation first. However, this system did not provide Israel with any semblance, uh, semblance of a strong central government. It could only work if the leaders, the judges and the priests, and of course the people were committed to following the Lord. The book of Judges records the sad failure of the people and the leaders in this system. 
you remember that Joshua was their leader, but he truly allowed the tribes, the different tribes, to uh, make decisions and to uh, guide their own tribes. So Joshua did not try to be a king. He simply allowed the tribes to uh, either work amongst themselves or on their own. Moses anticipated failure by including this law in reference to the future king. One may ask why God allowed priests and judges to fail, or why uh, why did not God institute the, mon- the monarchy immediately? And the answer, at least partly, first was that the nation would look to God for his leadership. In other words, they were to develop their spiritual and their moral foundation. This was, they will be given guidance on how to lead their individual tribes, but they were also designed to have uh, Levites that would teach the different tribes uh, so that they could grow spiritually first. So they needed to have a spiritual and moral foundation. And secondly, he was preparing the nation to appreciate the gift of the monarchy. Uh, and I think that is something that we we understood when we saw, uh, when we see David and then later also Solomon. All right, verse 14. Verse 14 says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you'll notice that uh, Moses continues to remind Israel that this is not going to be a grueling battle, that God is going to give them the land. And this is something that I think we need to understand ourselves, is that God provides for us. We sometimes think that we're carrying uh, on our shoulders uh, our own lives. God is providing for us. Uh, yes, that doesn't mean that uh, life is uh, without adversity, and it certainly was not without adversity for uh, for Israel. But we have to realize God's grace provision for us. So when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it, meaning Israel possesses it, and you dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So this was their desire. There would, this, there would uh, come a time when they desired to have a king, but they still needed to be patient as God would lead them. So the regulations that followed, uh, that follow anticipate the, the request that the Israelites would make for a king are seen here. We're going to see how God lays this for them. At the time of Moses, Israel was pr- uh, privileged in being different from the nations because God was their king. See, they wanted to have a king like all the other nations. Well, their kings were not going to be like all the other nations, or they were not to be that way. And until they had 
a human, uh, a person that was going to be their king. Who was their king? God was. God was their king. And he was not only going to lead them, but he was going to demonstrate to them how a king should lead. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's turn to two passages, Exodus fifteen eighteen. Exodus 15, where we'll see that there was an anticipation of a king, but God was to reign for them. And in Exodus 15, we see the result of uh, God bringing them through the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. And here is a praise to God for his rescuing of them. And we finish, um, I can read this whole thing, but let me, beginning, probably the easiest thing, verse maybe 16, fear and dread will fall on them. In other words, the enemies of Israel. In this uh, particular uh, time, it was uh, the Egyptians. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, your strength, they will be as still as a stone. They will be feared. There will be fear that would paralyze them. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, whom you have purchased, you have redeemed. You will bring them in and plant them. In other words, in in the future, in the uh, in the land, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. So this is going to be the uh, the uh, the promised land, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. He shall be their king. Now, we also have another passage that says something similar, and this is in Numbers 23, 21. Numbers 23, 21. This is Balaam's, one of his prophecies, but of course, he's not going to be able to curse Israel. Instead, he praises God. In verse 21, he says, he, God, has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, with Israel, and the shout of a king is coming among them. So this is references to God who would be their king. As uh, as problems arose, let's go back to Deuteronomy 17, as problems arose during the period of the kings, some attempted to establish a kingship. Uh, you'll notice that there were certain judges, there were certain leaders who desired to be king. Uh, Gideon refused such an offer, and we could read that in, in Jew, uh, Judges, Judges 8.23. However, he considered himself a king, because he named his son uh, Abimelech. And Avi, really, Avimelech is 
my father is king. So he must have allowed himself to act at times like a king because he names one of his sons, my father is king. Uh, And of course, Abimelech assumed the position of being king until the Lord removed him. With Saul's kingdomship, God finally granted Israel's request for a a national king. And we see this in 1 Samuel 8, uh, and we'll turn there. Uh, Although Saul's reign ended in disaster, the Lord chose to anoint David and promised him a lasting kingship. But let's turn to 1 Samuel. Now remember, this is... Moses speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy. This is prior to them even entering the land. We'll see after Deuteronomy, we have Joshua, the book of Joshua. We have the book of Judges. And then finally in 1 Samuel, the last prophet, we would say, or the last judge, really the last judge, He is going to anoint Samuel or or Saul. But we're going to see how this works, why this occurred the way it does. So in 1 Samuel 8, it's easier to do so if you're in 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel. All right. I'm just going to read this because this is uh, how... Israel responded to God's leading at this time. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. You'll notice that uh, they were supposed to follow in Samuel's footsteps, but they were disobedient. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiyah. Abiyah uh, Abi is actually, it's, the J is a Y. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, so they were not devoted to the Lord. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So in verse 4, we see the response of the people to what they believed was going to be uh, a a problem if Samuel died and was no longer their judge. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, they don't want to be like all the other nations. They're supposed to be a different nation. But they look around them and they see these other kings and they think that makes them, uh, those other nations, a great nation. And that's what they want. And uh, God has a plan for Israel, just like he has for our lives. He is taking us down this path. And he was taking Israel down this path. 
But they are anxious. They want to be like other nations. They are not to be other nations. Verse 6. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So here we have again, God was their king. And Samuel knows that God has a plan, and their demand to have a king is not God's plan. But instead of arguing with them, he says, I'll talk with God. And he speaks to God, expecting God to say, no, I'm the king. But what does God say to Samuel? He says, let's give them their request. Let's let them have their request. And we're going to see that uh, God is going to describe for us what a king is like. And they're not going to want this. He says, they have, they have not rejected you, Samuel. You know, every now and then something like this happens. Uh, and Samuel probably was um, offended by this. He took it personally. And God said, don't take it personally, Samuel. It could be you. It could be somebody else. But they're really not uh, rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I'm their king. Verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So, Samuel, again, don't take it personally. Uh, Ever since God brought Israel out of Egypt, there has been a, uh, we could say, a a disappointment in Israel. Uh, God continues to tell us to observe at history what he has done and understand who he is and what he's done for us. And that's what his uh, principle was with Egypt or with uh, Israel leaving Egypt. Uh, All of the things that God has done for them, but they lose this. They forget this. So he says, how I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods, which they are doing to you also. Nine, verse nine. Now, therefore, heed their voice, listen to their their voices, respond to them. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, this is God giving them an opportunity to hear what's going to happen and for them to saying, oh, never mind, and go back to the way that they've been, uh, their nation has been designed. But we're going to see that uh, the leaders here are uh, less than intelligent about what's going to happen. Verse 10. So Samuel 
told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. In other words, God told Samuel what's going to happen. And Samuel may have already known this, but God uh, lets Samuel know uh, what he's supposed to say. Verse 11, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. Verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. Verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants, and you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, you read that and you think, well, I guess they're going to lose a couple here and a couple there, uh, some of their animals, some of their uh, grain, some of their wine. We we can see how kings respond in history and even how governments respond today. They grow, they grow, they grow. And uh, who supports them? It's the people. And so here is God saying... <laughs> I'm low maintenance as God. I can take care of all of the things you need. But when you abandon me and you decide to have human kings, you're going to become servants. And you're going to lose many of the things that you possessed. And not only will that happen at the beginning, but it'll continue to grow. And all we would have to do is turn back to Solomon. Solomon built a huge government. And it took the tribes uh, to share every other month how they were going to supply the, uh, uh, the the size of that government. So here we have this warn. And you would think that uh, they would immediately say, as I said, uh, okay, well, we un- we didn't understand all that. But in verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, and Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the people, said to the men of Israel, everyone go to his, his city. And I think that's probably a, uh, 
rather mild in translation here. It's probably, get out of here. Go home. Forget this. God's going to take care of it. And that's precisely what he did. Uh, God would later point to an individual, Saul, who would be that first king. So, And he will give them somebody who they thought was very impressive, but he was not going to be the best king. All right. Verse 15. Uh, let me begin at the end of verse 14. I will set a king over, uh, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That is what Israel says. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And that's back in, uh, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, verse 17, or excuse me, 17, 15. So in verses 14 through 15, Israel could no longer tolerate the unique position of being without a king. And so Moses knows this. He's given this information by God, and he's able to give guidance on how a king should act. So Israel would eventually ask and receive a king. Verses 14 through 15 speak of the king's qualifications. First of all, we're going to see in verses 16 through 17, his behavior. In verses 18 through 20, his education or his his guidance. And then the king was to have two qualifications. First, he was to be chosen by the Lord. Uh, later history made it clear that the prophets, speaking on God's behalf, would declare his choice. They would anoint the kings. That's how that was supposed to work. The people would be sure that God would place no one on the throne whom he had not given the gift of king, uh, the gift to be king. Therefore, if a king failed, the reason for his fail- failure would not lie in his lack of ability, but in his moral life. Because God would put a following of the dynasty, and God would put him on the, the throne. And then secondly, the king must be an Israelite. Uh, an Israelite raised from childhood in the traditions and scripture of Israel would be a far better choice than a foreigner. And as a matter of fact, uh, this was something that was established by uh, God with particularly Judah. Verse 16, But he, the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, You shall not return that way. Verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself, which is exactly what we see kings doing. That So the, the king that God would appoint was not to be like the kings of all the other nations. God knew what's best. So 
These regulations linked the power and splendor of the future king. In other words, the future king was going to be the Messiah in the kingdom, the Messiah, the Messianic kingdom. He would not be dependent on military power and riches. He was exhorted not to entangle the nation in political alliances that would expose Israel to pagan worship. See, that was another uh, reason why they didn't want to have a God like all the other nations, is they wanted them to be more focused on God and their spiritual lives than in their political uh, growth and power. Instead, the king was exhorted to guide the nation into obedience to God. Now, in those in those uh, verses, verses 16 through 17, three things about the behavior of the king were singled, were uh, were described. First of all, the prohibition against acquiring great numbers of horses meant that the human terms uh, of the king's army, composed mostly of infantry, would be significantly weir- less strong, weaker, than an enemy's army with many chariots and cavalry. cavalry. Uh, one of the things that we, we knew and we've learned is that uh, not until S- Solomon uh, decided he wanted to build chariots, Israel was, they were infantry. And uh, that's the way they fought. So to go down to Egypt is where they would need to go to get these horses. So it was precisely the point, and that is they weren't to build up a huge army with uh, cavalry and chariots. An obedient Israelite king was to depend not on military strength, but on the Lord alone. God had already demonstrated his ability to crush a large superior chariot army, and that was at the Red Sea. Acquiring horses, this is what I I meant to say here, acquiring horses would mean that the people would be going to Egypt where many horses were available. Return to the nation's former land of slavery was unthinkable. The second prohibition against uh, taking many wives was given because many kings married foreign women for uh, to form political alliances. If the king followed the Lord, he would not need political alliances. So, uh, and that's precisely what uh, Solomon did. Solomon, uh, many of his wives uh, were to seal alliances, but you don't need alliances when God is your refuge, when he is your leader, he is your king. Also, foreign wa- uh, wives would cause the king's heart to be led astray to worship their idols, and that is a, a prophecy for Solomon. Uh, the prohibition against large amounts of silver and gold was intended to keep the king from developing a sense of independence and a lust for material wealth. In other words, kings, rulers, 
leaders, they like to have uh, wealth, and they depend upon the wealth instead of depending upon God and God's provisions. And so that was uh, the prohibitions. All three prohibitions then were designed to reduce the king to the status of a servant totally dependent on his master, the Lord. The tragedy of ignoring these commands is seen in Solomon, who broke all three prohibitions. All right, verses 18 uh, through 20. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, the king, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law. And the word here for law is Torah. So he is to go to the Levites who would have a copy, have the copies of the scrolls and he would write for himself a copy of the book, the scroll of the Torah from the one before the, uh, the priests and the Levites. Verse 19, and that shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of his law and these statutes, that his heart might not be lifted above his brethren, that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his day in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. You'll notice here that it says... Um, verse 19, and it shall be with him. He's going to write, he's going to uh, be given a scroll of the Torah, beginning with Genesis all the way through uh, Deuteronomy. And he will write for himself uh, a scroll. Now, we might say, well, that would probably take a long time, wouldn't it? And the answer would be, yes. He's supposed to spend his time much of the time in the word of God because God is going to provide for him. And so as he writes, copies the law, it is, uh, we would say, it is makes an impression on his mind of what he's supposed to do. And then it says he's supposed to read it every day, every day of his life. Uh, the principle there is that that's what we're supposed to be doing. We should be reading the Bible every day. We have more than just the first five books of the Bible, uh, which means we have uh, a lot of the Bible to read, but that's something that we should be doing, reading the entire book. So here we have that principle. And it says that one of the reasons he's doing this is that he will not be an arrogant king. Uh, seeing himself as being uh, special above his people. He is to serve them. A king is to serve his people, not to be arrogant and make servants of them. All right. Uh, A few observations here. The education of a king consisted of copying, reading, and following carefully the law and these decrees, that is the entire book of uh, Deuteronomy 
And uh, it's also believed that there were other sections of the Word of God that he was supposed to write. Now, there are some who would believe, who would believe that maybe it was just Deuteronomy. And that's possible. But when we speak of the Torah, when he's supposed to copy the Torah, it seems that it's more than Deuteronomy, although it could just simply be Deuteronomy. Secondly, writing a a copy of the law, the true king of Israel would be bound to God's instructions. He would not be a tyrant, but a king who ruled in accordance with God's revelation, his revealed will. Finally, here where it says, and his heart, what's verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Um, There were many kings, of course, that as they drifted away from God, they uh, lost not only reverence for God, but the, the fear that they should hold for the omnipotent God. He holds their lives, their breaths, their heartbeats in his hand, and they should uh, fear him. He opens their eyes every day. He maintains their lives. Uh, and so this word for fear, I think, has legitimately, uh, legitimacy. So only if the king lived in proper reverence of God would the people follow suit. He is a leader. Um, they should have uh, understand that he is reading the Bible. Therefore, they should as well. If the king was godly, the people's declined evil practices would be, uh, if he was not godly, excuse me, if he was not godly, then the people's decline into evil practices would be accelerated. So uh, his heart was not to be lifted. By reading and obeying God's law, the king would be reminded that he was to be a man of the people. He was no different than anyone else, except that God had chosen him to guide the nation in righteousness. And this is, I think, one of those remarkable uh, understandings here for leaders. So many leaders decide that uh, they have their own uh, desires. They have their own wishes as far as how uh, they're going to uh, promote themselves or advance themselves. And that's not what a leader is to do. A leader is to be an example. And an example should uh, follow honor. And as we uh, see in the Word of God, that we should uh, follow uh, the righteousness of God. So I think that's as far as we'll go because uh, the next section of uh, chapter 18, 1 through 8, about the priests and the Levites, I want to spend a little more time with them than we have left. So uh, I think we'll depart here just a little bit early. And next, I think next week, yes, we'll be able to come back and maybe finish up chapter 18. Uh, it's an excellent uh, chapter about uh, 
priests and Levites uh, and also uh, the uh, prophets and how they were to apply. And most, one of the things that we see from Moses is that many of these uh, positions are still being, uh, when he's teaching this, they're still learning how to uh, fill these positions. And so Moses is a prophet, and therefore he is teaching them as he goes forward. Reading the Bible is one of the things we should learn tonight about our passage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the remarkable passages that we've read tonight. And we're thankful for Moses, and we're, we're thankful for uh, the information that you've given him. And we find in Deuteronomy, long before it was going to occur, um, we pray, Father, that we would not only understand why Moses is teaching this, but the application for us. Help us, Father, to honor you, to live our lives in a godly way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.